Listen all month as ReachMD XM157 explores The Great Debate, a special series discussing the future of public health policy in America. You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Medical errors and preventable complications plague our patients. What can be done to improve the safety for our inpatients? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, your host, and with me today is Fran Griffin, a director at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Thanks for being with us, Ms. Griffin. Sure. Thanks for having me here. I know that there are several areas that the Institute for Healthcare Improvement targets in terms of inpatient safety. A real hot topic now is MRSA. What are your recommendations? What can we do to help our patients in this arena? Well, I think it's important to note that you know, IHI per se doesn't really make any recommendations in this topic or any others. We really defer to the clinical expert organizations out there, which have already made extensive recommendations, many of which have been around for some time. So we work with scientific partners like the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the Association of Professionals in Infection Control, and the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America, They have very solid evidence-based guidelines on the types of things that should be done in the hospital setting to prevent the transmission of MRSA from one patient to another. What we really try to do at IHI is take those evidence-based practices and find out from hospitals that have been successful what strategies they use to achieve success so that we can spread those and disseminate them to other hospitals out there because simply publishing the guidelines we've learned in many areas isn't enough. If it was, we wouldn't be having these problems. So we really focus our efforts on disseminating those practices. And for MRSA, we focused on five. Those are hand hygiene for all patients, appropriate use of contact precautions for patients who are infected or colonized with MRSA, appropriate cleaning and decontamination of the environment and equipment, active surveillance testing to identify patients who may be colonized and are unaware of it, and the use of device bundles, which are particular to the critical care setting. If I could go back to some of these, in terms of adequate hand hygiene, is this simply that everyone coming in the room washes their hands and washes when they leave, or is there more to it than that? I think there's a bit more to it because there's a lot of misperceptions about appropriate hand hygiene. For example, someone going into the room who is planning when they go in not to have any direct patient contact may believe that they don't need to use hand hygiene, which can be an alcohol-based gel or foam or soap and water before they enter the room or when they leave. And that's not true for a variety of reasons. One is that while they may not be planning to have any direct patient contact when they walk into the room, sometimes what you do changes after you get there. Absolutely. Because the patient will say, well, while you're here, Mm -hmm. can you help me with this or um, I need attention to that? And also, they may be touching the environment and not realizing, because we don't always think about it, that if they touch something like the bedside rail or the table and that's been contaminated by someone else and then they leave the room and go to another patient, they're now operating under the misconception that their hands haven't been contaminated because there's nothing visible 
on their hands. And so that's why the emphasis is on always using appropriate hand hygiene before and after every entry to the patient's room because there's any number of ways that a person's hands can become contaminated and you never know what you're going to have to do once you get in the room. And how successful have we been in making sure that the hospitals around the country have the appropriate sinks and soap and the things necessary to carry this out on a regular basis? Well, I don't know that anybody has measured that, so I don't know what the answer to that would be. You know, assessing whether or not hospitals have enough supplies would be a a very large undertaking, and it's not just whether or not they have enough, but it's where are they placed. Mm -hmm. Are they in locations that are convenient and accessible to staff members and where they're near the patient care activities they're doing so that they don't have to interrupt a care activity if they need to access something in the middle of a, a procedure or other activity. Hospitals have been voluntarily, for the most part, measuring compliance with hand hygiene through the use of observation, which, while it has its flaws, is about the best we have right now. Mm-hmm. And most places find that, on average, it runs around 50%. And that's if you have somebody observing where the person doing the care activity truly doesn't know that they're being observed, which is, of course, the ideal. We have seen some hospitals improve in this area, voluntarily reported reports, of course, up to being in the 90s as far as the percentage of people complying with appropriate hand hygiene. And that's really great, and there's some good lessons there. Some of that has to do with designing the processes as I mentioned, ensuring that the supplies not only are there, but they're in the right locations, but also really trying to change the culture and getting everyone in the mindset of doing this every time. And that takes some time to do. So we're optimistic that it can be done, but there's still a good amount of work ahead of us to get everybody to those levels of performance that emphasis on the culture, and that's the expected and norm, I can understand how powerful that would be, but also how difficult that is to achieve. In terms of contact, should we be gowning and putting on masks? Well, the CDC recommendations for patients with MRSA call only for gowns and gloves, Mm -hmm. because MRSA is generally not an airborne infection. Keep in mind, I'm not an infection control practitioner, but this is what I've learned from the experts that we've consulted. Mm -hmm. However, if the patient has open wounds or has a MRSA pneumonia where there may be the potential for airborne transmission, anything that involves droplets, of course, a mask would be indicated. But the basic recommendations are just for gown and gloves because it's really a contact issue. And then the third point that you made, uh, we were just discussing this at lunch, does MRSA, the staph bacteria, remain viable on inanimate objects? How much do you have to decontaminate and, and clean the room? Well, there are studies that have shown how a room or equipment not properly cleaned can result in transmission to subsequent patients. In fact, we've cited a few of those articles in the IHI how-to guide for reducing MRSA, which is available on our website. At no charge, all of our materials are out there for free. But it clearly does show the importance of cleaning the environment. And so that calls for appropriate cleaning, what's called the terminal cleaning, when the patient leaves the room and is discharged. 
but it also emphasizes the importance of when you have equipment that goes from room to room, patient to patient, cleaning it in between patients. One strategy would be to ensure that there's dedicated equipment, so blood pressure cuffs and stethoscopes that stay at the bedside of someone who's on contact precautions and are not used with other patients. But people also have to remember that things they carry on their own person, such as a personal stethoscope or a pager or some palm electronic device, also can be contaminated if someone picks them up on their hands. And it only takes a little bit of alcohol to wipe these things down to clean them effectively for MRSA. But the importance of thorough cleaning really can't be understated. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman. I'm talking about MRSA prevention for our inpatients with Fran Griffin, a director at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Ms. Griffin, tell us about the surveillance you mentioned. Is, is that culturing every patient who's admitted, or how does that work? Well, there are no solid recommendations from the clinical expert organizations such as CDC, APIC, or SHEA. CDC, in their HICPAC guidelines last year for MDROs, recommended that active surveillance be used as a tool if other types of prevention strategies appear to not be effective or if the problem is pretty widespread or significant. Many of our faculty feel that we are already there as far as other strategies not working Mm -hmm. and that doing active surveillance testing is important to understand the scope of the problem that you're dealing with. However, most organizations that have been successful in doing this have not had to screen every patient coming into their hospital. Many places have started just by focusing on the patients who are at greatest risk, and that includes patients who've had a history of a previous hospitalization or other healthcare encounter like a long-term care facility within the previous year, uh, patients being admitted into the ICU, and a few other criteria. And some of these hospitals have been able to achieve significant reductions in their in-house MRSA infections just by concentrating on those populations. Um, It's important for any hospital to think about if they take on active surveillance testing that if you go hospital-wide, that's a very big undertaking and can be very complex. It also requires a great deal of resources. It can put a huge burden on the laboratory if it's not well planned out. You also have to account for nursing time to collect the screening culture or other swab that's sent onto the lab for testing. And also, you have to think ahead of time about what you will do with the results. Will you place patients on preemptive contact precautions while you're waiting for the results? Or will you wait until the results come back to decide what you're going to do? If you put colonized patients on contact precautions, these may be people who don't believe they have an infection, and if they're only colonized, they don't, but they suddenly will be very alarmed if family members and staff members are coming into the room wearing gowns and gloves, Mm -hmm. and they think they're there for something very simple. Mm -hmm. And, of course, you also have to think ahead as to what you will tell these patients because they will want to know, will I be treated for this? So the hospital has to make the decision whether or not they will decolonize patients or not, and if so, explain to the patients what they have decided to do and why. 
So there are a lot of aspects to this before an organization ventures down the path. We highly recommend from our experiences at IHI that an organization choosing to take this on start with a subset of the population, such as the ICU or a high-risk group of patients, to get the process right before going hospital-wide, if that's something the organization ultimately chooses to do. Well, I want to thank Fran Griffin, Director at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, for being with us and discussing with us strategies to help with dealing with MRSA in inpatients. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening to ReachMD XM157 and The Great Debate, a month-long special series and discussion on the future of public health policy in America.